Lord God, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering this morning to learn about you and speak about you and speak about who you have made us to be. We ask that you would teach us more about yourself and more about how we are to live in relation to you. We really need you. Please grow us and don't let this remain in the theoretical, but make it practical and help us live obeying you and knowing you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. This is part of the Anthropology and Sin class. We're talking about who God has made humanity to be, who we are, and what sin has done to that. Today we're still mainly focusing just on what is a human. Uh, This is technically part two of a two-part class. The other part is happening simultaneously, so none of you have heard it yet. But that's okay. If you want to go to that class, you can. It's downstairs in the chapel. Otherwise, you're welcome to stay here because we're still teaching this one right now. It's gonna. The one uh, downstairs is focusing on uh, what is a human. Humans have bodies and souls. That's what a human is. It's what they possess. And it's what they are. We are embodied souls. This class up here is going to be focusing on the soul part. And basically just asking the question, what does a soul do? What is it able to do? What is it supposed to be able to do? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. That's the ESV translation. Uh, That final word, uh, or final two words, living being, can also be translated living soul. Final word is the word for soul or spirit. And so the Bible means to emphasize that we as humans are spiritual in nature. We are both physical as, you know, we have bodies. We are also spiritual. We have souls and we are souls that's the bible uses the word in both ways we have a soul and we are souls we have a body and we are embodied souls that's what we are right for more information on that feel free to go back and listen to the part one of this class it's going to be on the podcast soon and we can send you that link if you don't know how to find it Uh, but you don't necessarily need that context for this week i gave you all the context you need right there we're going to be talking about what does a soul do? What do we do? Uh, and the answer is essentially the soul thinks and the soul takes action. We label these two things intellect, the thinking, judging, processing part of the soul, and will, the desiring and doing. So I, I used the word part there, that part of the soul. I didn't actually mean to say that. That actually that just slipped out. So we got to be careful. We're not actually saying there are different pieces of a soul. We're not actually talking about components. We're talking about abilities, right? So the soul doesn't necessarily have a bunch of parts like an engine does to be able to do one thing. The soul is one thing. It's mysterious. It's a spirit. And it is supposed to be able to do certain things and we distinguish them just to be able to talk about them to be able to speak of them in any sensible way the soul thinks and judges and evaluates and the soul desires wants wills and acts right so that's what human souls are able to do Uh, and one note that i want to make clear is that 
the Bible never specifically says humans have an intellect and humans have a will, right? It never gives us these direct categories like in a specific Bible verse. Rather, this is how uh, theologians throughout history have tried to think about what the Bible does say. The Bible does clearly say humans think and judge and evaluate and humans desire and act. Those are super clear, right? And different theologians throughout history have made like slightly different models of how we should think about this. I think this one is probably the most common among theologians we trust, and it's probably the most simple and clear for thinking about it. So this is the one we're going to use. You can read a whole bunch of other smart guys who had slightly different views on, uh, on the activities of the soul, but we'll be satisfied to talk about this one this morning. So the main idea we're getting at today, it's at the top of your handout. Uh, God has created our souls with capacities for thinking and acting, and God intends us to use these faculties to know him and to love him. So that's what we're trying to get at today. I'm going to throw one question to the class before we dive into the entire content here. The question is, can you think of a reason why any of this would be important for a Christian to learn? Why would we want to learn what a soul does based on what we've got so far? Go ahead and just give it, give it a stab. What do you think? So if it's not valuable, we shouldn't learn it, right? We talk about how we have to be saved from our sin, and our mm-hmm. soul has to be saved. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing that comes to my mind. Okay, excellent. I hadn't thought of that one as, like, direct reasons. That's great. Our souls need to be saved, so we might want to know what a soul is and does, right? Mm-hmm. That's great. Anything else? Looking backwards in the lessons, it helps inform, like, how we're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Excellent. So how we're made in the image of God tells us more of what that actually means, right? Anything else? I think it's important to distinguish soul versus spirit. It's a contrast. Mm-hmm. So contrast between soul and spirit. Yeah. Can you say anything more about that? Well, there's they're, they're different things. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the same thing necessarily. I don't know. Yeah. That, so that's a good point. The... There are actually differing, differing points of view in Christianity on whether soul and spirit actually mean different things or whether uh, the biblical authors just used multiple words to refer to the same thing. We're going to be using the view in this class that the soul and spirit actually refer to the same thing in the human. And uh, I think the other class, the part one of this class on what a human body is and what a human soul is will have more to say on that point. If you want to, uh, I don't mean to like kind of steamroll your point, but rather it's important to know that in church history, there were kind of two views on that. Well, at least two. There are probably a whole bunch of others that we ruled out as really bad. Uh, But the two like kind of main views were trichotomy and dichotomy. So there are like people who thought there are three parts of a human, body, soul, and spirit, where one of the soul or the spirit refers to spiritual and one of them refers to emotional. And there's another point of view, the one that we hold to, which I, I personally think is more biblical, is just dichotomy, soul and body. And emotions are found in the interplay between soul and body, not necessarily as a distinct like third part. Okay? 
So more on that in the class downstairs if you want to listen to that afterward. For now, we'll focus just on the soul. What does the soul do? But these are great points. We want to know how do we be saved, right? We want to know how are we to image God rightly. We want to know what, who are we as humans? Because this will actually help us live in light of who God is when we understand who he has made us to be. And when we understand what the soul actually does, what we are doing every day, we can actually better understand how we're struggling with sin, what it means to be sanctified and to follow God more obediently, and actually understand how do we like get inside of that process, right? Not that we'll ever actually really dissect it completely, but if there's something the Bible has said about how we operate, we want to know it so we can actually use that information when we try to live more obediently, right? And follow Jesus. Right, so that's where we're going. Let's dive right into section two, the intellect. We're going to define intellect as the soul's God-given capacity to understand and evaluate. There are two main parts there, understanding and evaluate. And remember, we're not talking about a part of the soul. We're talking about an ability, an ability to understand and evaluate things. The Bible depicts the soul uh, as operating with understanding multiple times. These, are, these three Bible verses I referenced here are actually points where the Bible specifically uses the word soul or spirit and links it to understanding. The first one is in 1 Corinthians where uh, Paul writes that the spirit of a person knows that person's thoughts. When he's talking about who knows the mind of a person except that person's spirit, God's spirit knows his mind, right? The main point is that your soul has to do with thinking. Isaiah 29, and I am going to go through these fast just for the sake of time. Feel free to open up to them if you like, but I'm just going to kind of go through. There will be other verses we sit in for a minute. Isaiah 29 says, God promises that he will redeem the remnant of Israel, and this is a paraphrase, after exile, so that those who, and this is the quote, went astray in spirit will come to understanding. And that is, their spirits lacked understanding, and so they went astray, but later their spirits will gain understanding and they'll know the Lord better. Psalm 77, uh, the psalmist is in a season of disaster and his soul makes a diligent search, that's the quote, to consider whether the Lord will abandon his people and to try to recall the Lord's deeds on behalf of his people. The spirit is engaged in searching and meditating and thinking. So that's just evidence I think, I think we kind of all agree we as humans understand stuff. This is just biblical evidence that this is linked to our souls, who we are as people. It's intimately involved here. Right. So the first sub-point under intellect, comprehension. We're going to use that word to basically just describe the soul's ability to perceive matters and understand them. So you could kind of think of that as the first step of intellect. You understand stuff, Right. We see things, we understand stuff about them, we perceive them, and this is one way that God's image is reflected in us in a small way. Uh, God knows and understands all things. By his grace and by his design, we humans get to understand and know some things in a finite capacity. We're actually meant to understand even spiritual things. The New Testament says a few times that we humans are meant to understand spiritual things. However, sin darkens our understanding. It darkens the understanding of our minds. That's from Ephesians 4. And that 
the, the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. That's in 1 Corinthians 2, because they're folly to him. But that's not because he's human, not because the natural man is a human, but because the natural man is in sin. He's supposed to understand spiritual things. God meant for us to understand something about God, to know things about him, to be able to comprehend them. Um, and then what we do understand as humans, everything that we understand, even the stuff we understand incorrectly, we still have some perception of it, right? We still have some mental model. That mental model becomes the basis for the way we judge things and evaluate them. So bottom line for comprehension is it's actually pretty simple. We are all understanding things, even if some of our understanding is wrong. There's some conceptual image we humans have of stuff, of everything in our lives, right? We understand something. That leads us into the second point, judgment. This is that humans evaluate matters to be true or false and good or evil. We're constantly, sometimes even subconsciously, judging the value of things. We're evaluating stuff. We're evaluating teaching. You might, you're evaluating my teaching right now against the Bible to try to make sure whether it's good or wrong, right? And so you, we can be able to have a conversation about that. You judge how good food tastes. You, we're making evaluations about whether things are valuable. Is that car worth the price that the dealership is asking me to pay for it? Maybe, maybe not, right? That's why you'd negotiate. Uh, and this is what we humans do. And this is another way God's image is reflected in us. God judges good and evil in the perfect ultimate way. In a small way, finite way, we humans are supposed to make similar judgments about things. We're supposed to correctly judge good and evil. Uh, there are times where we still get this wrong because of the corruption of sin, and that's an important thing to point out, but the act of judging is a good part of God's design. We naturally make these judgments. Here's an example of how comprehension and judgment could work together. Uh, so let's say I go to a restaurant and I try some new buffalo wings that I've never had before. Comprehension, I taste the wings and I understand what they are. I experience them, at least on the taste level, right? Judgment, I make an evaluation about whether I like them and whether they were worth the $16 I paid to buy just eight chicken wings, right? It's $2 a chicken wing. You've got to make a judgment about whether that was worth it. It's a pretty common experience, by the way. That's how much chicken wings cost these days. Um, so it's sort of a silly example, but the reality is that we are always understanding stuff around us in some way, and then we're making judgments about those things, making evaluations about them. And so that was all kind of like the human soul's ability to think and understand and judge. It's all intellect. That's how I'm going to categorize it. Those thoughts and judgments then become the basis for what the will does. And we're going to transition into that in the next part. Uh, but first, any questions about what we've gone through so far? Go ahead, Laura. Sorry. Uh, Don't be sorry. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm I'm going to sound just a tad bit argumentative, and mm -hmm. I don't mean to be. Mm -hmm. But with the comprehension piece, yeah. I'm having a hard time understanding uh -huh. <laughs> how that's not, how that doesn't belong in like the body camp. 
mm -hmm. right? Like the brain. Yeah. And because I even like look at like animals, right? And like mm -hmm. sort of smarter animals, like they, they're to some extent they seem to understand some things. Like mm -hmm. I trained a rat in college mm -hmm. to like press, the, like right, like they can understand some things, even if if it's the most simple version of understanding. Mm -hmm. So how? And obviously we know that animals don't have souls. And so, well, well, I keep going. Yeah, well, we'll just <laughs> pass that. So yeah, so why is comprehension or understanding distinctly a soul thing, and why are we not assigning that to the body? Why is that not assigned to the body? Great question. I have a hunch that you might have a guess for an explanation, and if you don't, that's okay. But I want to hear like. Like you're always, I know, I know you personally. You're always thinking. Do you have a guess as to what I would try to say or how you would try to explain it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I uh, just like you to go for it. So okay, instead of me just kind of talking, we can, we can discuss it. <laughs> um, my guess is that you would say that there's a difference between intellect and instinct, and then we would go from there. Okay. I think that's a really great distinction. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, let me address just a couple things. The Bible does actually use this word soul to refer to animals. It's just kind of a side point. Really weird, right? Everybody's kind of surprised by that. I was surprised by that. Same word throughout the Old Testament. Multiple places use the word soul to refer to animals. Makes, still makes very clear distinctions between animal and human souls. Never mentions that animal souls will live forever. Never says that. It's a lot of things we just don't know because it doesn't really say a whole lot. So there's a lot of mystery there. I'm not gonna try to unearth it all right now. But that that's kind of the, the first thing. Like there's, there's some soul nature to animals, but they're never described the same way human souls are as having real like understanding, perceiving, deciding power, right? Whereas humans do. The other thing is, yeah, I think there is a distinction between instinct and intellect. I think that's a big difference between humans and animals. And animals are never ascribed intellect in the same way. They are ascribed making instinctual decisions, even very complex ones, right? Like the, the rat who knew to press the button in order to get, you know, either food or pleasure, right? However, um, when it comes to distinguishing between body and soul using the intellect, I don't think we're actually trying to say the body plays no part at all. What we are trying to say is that the soul is like the heart of intellect, right? And then our experience as humans in perceiving things and understanding them is a soul and body combo. You want, your soul is understanding things because your eyes are seeing them, right? Your brain is processing them but your, your soul is still the center of it. Even to the point where the Bible describes people who are dead, disembodied souls in heaven, asking the Lord, when are you going to come back and, and justify us and vindicate us, the martyrs, before the, you know, the evil world who has killed us, right? So they still have some kind of, like they don't have their bodies, but they have an intellect and will very clearly, even without the body. They're not, meant to be without the body forever because we'll be raised in glory. But I think the main point is we see biblically even without a body, the soul has these capacities. And these are the, the, cent the soul is the center of these capacities. Even though what we experience day to day 
will be a very complex, beautiful combination of body and soul. And so I'm not trying to say your body's never engaged, never part of it, but I think biblically, and this isn't something I'd like fight about, but like I think biblically we have to say that the intellect and will exist in the soul even when the body's not around, even after death and separation from the body, right? I think, I think that's pretty clear even though the Bible, I can't think of a verse that explains that directly because most of these are just, we're relying on assumptions that the Bible make, like expects us to believe when it talks about the soul and the body. So yeah, further questions? Anything else? What's up, Kevin? Not even late, but I'm just thinking for also the way God gave different individuals different levels of intellect mm-hmm. and also different ways of learning. How does that like tie into just the way God designed us? Yeah, I probably don't have a good answer for that, actually. I don't have a great, like, out-of-the-Bible answer for how do we describe what is the source of people's differing levels of intellect ability i think we like what i know i should say is that all humans have this in some degree right all of their souls have this i think a a soul's operation in the world might be impaired by a body that's deformed or hurt in some way and so lacking like if the brain didn't develop rightly you're going to be impaired in how you perceive things and react to them right so there is an interplay between body and soul there is beyond that i think that's probably the most comprehensive answer i can give uh, because the bible doesn't have a whole dissertation on on like how all of that works yeah go ahead abby right yeah okay yeah thanks what if you So I think those experiences you described as people having different bodies and different setbacks and different abilities, totally, like, that's totally true of our experience, totally true biblically. I think we need to be careful about using the word vessel or container when we refer to the human body, and for for two reasons. 
the first one is that whenever when the bible refers to people it often uses the word bodies to refer to the whole person so they actually use like it's called metonymy refers to a part to refer to the whole so there's actually something personal about the human body like it's not just a vessel for your soul and then someday your soul will just like it wants to live without or could or meet intends to live without someday rather your body is actually totally part of your identity it uses your body as a noun for you quite often so based on the biblical language i think we would actually use both the body and the soul as like i it's part of your identity right and not just a vessel for your identity and the second reason is because one day in glory we will not be a bunch of disembodied souls living free from bodies we will actually have our bodies renewed and resurrected and i don't believe they are different bodies based on what the bible says we like we get the same body back transformed the uh, paul says we sh- we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed right the in- the perishable will put on imperishable we will have imperishable bodies and the perfect state of humanity as described by the bible is that we will all be embodied souls forever living physically and spiritually enjoying the lord and worshiping him body and soul forever and so the body is actually so integral to worship that like we are actually supposed to worship god with our bodies and it's part of the internal plan the the one that's forever I think it's therefore clear that we shouldn't think about it as a container, even though those other things you said about like, hey, we're, you know, we struggle with infirmities and that totally changes our lives. I would say that's not because you have a bad container, but because your current body, part of you is corrupted by sin and the effects of the fall now and that will one day be fixed forever. And so, yeah, it's kind of a nuanced distinction but there's like a whole bunch of like theological history behind the container debate is like probably what we can call it. Uh, but it's a very good thread. I'm gonna like close down the questions just so that we can get to the next part. But thank you guys for engaging so much right there. That was great. Um, yeah, if you want more of those specific things we just talked about, I think those will also relate to the part one class as well. So give that a listen afterward or go bother Cody Montgomery about some more of those ones because I'm sure he'll know some other stuff too. Great. So next we're going to talk about the conscience, which is still part of the intellect or still one of the abilities of the soul within intellect. This is your own judgment concerning yourself and your deeds. This is just judgment applied to you when you think and judge yourself. Uh, Conscience involves three things, three basic things. Knowledge, understanding God's will to some extent and to some level of correctness. It also involves witness when you observe your own actions and determine whether they agree with God's will that you know. And finally, it involves acknowledgement. This is recognizing that God is aware of your actions and the resulting conviction concerning them. Uh, let's go ahead and read Romans 2, 14 through 16 together. This will give us an example from Paul's letter to the Romans about conscience. The context here is that Paul 
is mid-argument right now. It's in the middle of his argument explaining why all people stand responsible and guilty before God. And this is just one little piece of the argument, and we're jumping in midway, but it's essentially explaining that even Gentiles, non-Jewish people who don't have the law of God, who don't have God's law in writing, even they know something of it and are a law to themselves. So let's go ahead and read starting in chapter 2, verse 14. Can someone volunteer to read that for me in the Bible? Go ahead, Tori. 14 through 16, please. For in Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to, to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. So within that explanation, Paul notes how even Gentiles who don't have the law itself, the Old Testament law, they have knowledge. The work of the law is written on their hearts. To some extent, they know right and wrong. Their conscience also bears witness, right? The conscience knows our actions and evaluates them according to what we know of God's law. Conscience is watching evaluating and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day it's acknowledgement their conscience is recognizing what they did having evaluated it and it's basically speaking back to them and saying you did right or you did wrong based on what i know about god right what you know little or a lot i know about god our conscience testifies to us concerning the day of judgment and convicts us. So that's, that's what the conscience is and what, that's what it does, right? Um, and so the conscience is actually a good thing. Conscience helps us obey God, makes judgments about what we do, and helps us steer the ship back into God's path, into obeying him and loving him. However, your conscience can make mistakes. I think that should be very clear from the very first step of the conscience, knowledge. It's possible to know God's law incorrectly, right? It's possible to be convinced that something is good when it's not actually good. Example, uh, you might have grown up or one of us might have grown up believing it's actually wrong to share the gospel with others because that's like imposing your view upon other people. If that's something, you know, I grew up believing is that it's wrong for me to evangelize because it's too, it's too forward, it's too blunt, it's actually hurtful to people. And then my conscience convicts me if I try to talk to somebody about Jesus and says, you shouldn't have done that, Zach. That's actually very bad. That's, the conscience is then steering me in the wrong direction and preventing me from obeying God in a good way. That's just one example. Uh, your conscience could also fail to convict you and fail to guide you away from sin. Like perhaps you believe something is right when it's actually wrong. And, and so your conscience just never reacts to like when you, you know, watch a TV show that's clearly making you think about sin or clearly making you enjoy sin, right? I'm not trying to say something about every TV show or something like that, but when you do something that you kind of have an inkling of that might be wrong, 
but maybe your conscience just kind of, you're so used to ignoring it that you just kind of put it away, right? Your conscience could backfire because of wrong knowledge. Your conscience could backfire also because you've just gotten used to ignoring it. It's totally out of practice. I believe that's called when the conscience is seared. That shows up in 2 Timothy, I believe, when Paul talks about the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared and they're leading people astray with their false teaching. They know what they're teaching is false, but they're getting good stuff out of it. They're making money or otherwise, and so they keep teaching what's false for themselves and don't even feel bad about it. That's a seared conscience. And so the encouragement is don't ignore your conscience, right? For that will set you up to not care about sin but also conform your conscience to what God's word says. We are all in progress people. We all have consciences that still require maintenance and growth. And so uh, when we find ourselves convicted in a direction, in general, we should listen to that conviction and trust that as we keep reading the word and keep spending time around God's people and keep growing with them, that God will grow our conscience to conform to his word more rightly, what to his true law. And so that will continue listening. So don't turn it off. It's actually really good. You don't need to be crushed by your conscience. That's not, that's not the point. The point is to really hate your sin and be convicted by it, then go to the Lord and trust him for forgiveness and repent and turn away from it. Because the true life is found in following Jesus, trusting him, being changed by him one step at a time question for the class. What should we do when our conscience differs in judgment from that of other Christians? What happens if, so Tori and I are married, what happens if I think we should watch a TV show, but she doesn't think we should watch a TV show? How do, that's just an example. You don't have to give an answer for that question. <laughs> but like, what, um, I, ju- I just made that one up. Uh, what, what do we do when Christians disagree based upon their consciences? Kevin. Pray about it. Oh, that's um, a great answer. And then I think depending, and then, and then after that, I think depending on the scenario, I think like a husband, wife, spousal relationship, like talking through it, mm-hmm. and then not leading someone into a seared conscience or mm-hmm. uh, like creating that discernment in a, in a so I, I think in that scenario, I think that's uh, a way to go and like um, maybe relegating or sharpening something that you might be missing that say Tori might see when not, you know, vice versa. Yeah. In that example, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I can continue the process of leading each other uh, to eternity and, mm-hmm. and glory mm-hmm. to God in that. Yeah, excellent. Prayer and discussion and being charitable. Great start right there. Yeah, any other thoughts? I think in general, I'm reminded of the verse, I know Paul said it, I can't remember which book it is, but it's in terms of like sort of deferring to the weaker brother. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, in this case, even though we would would normally say, well, complementarianism means that the husband is Mm -hmm. the the leader and he's going to, you know, if there is kind of a, a standstill on decision making, like he's going to make the call. In that case, you should make the call. Mm-hmm. That you 
not watch the TV show, even though that's kind of her preference, not mm -hmm. yours, uh, because that's how you protect your wife, um, who is in that case the weaker brother because the conscience is safe. Yeah. That's really good. Go ahead, I think First Corinthians 8 is everything you have with like the meat sacrifice to idols, so mm -hmm. you should yeah, yeah. Not, not eat it, even though your conscience says that it's fine. I mean, I think, so backing up a little bit on your question, I think praying, like looking to the Bible to see if there's something clear one way or the other, because mm -hmm. like if somebody's conscience is like clearly going against what like an affirmative thing said in the Bible, yeah. then that might be something to work through with them. Right. But then I think it's like once you've prayed, gone to the Bible, maybe talked to other people who aren't involved in whatever other you know, brothers and sisters in the church, yeah. then I think you know, deferring to the weaker conscience and like mm -hmm. help thinking about how can we serve each other and help each other to serve God more in mm -hmm. line with our consciences. Yeah, excellent. So defer to scripture. If something really is clear in the Bible, it's worth checking out and submitting to that. And then when something's not clear, you defer to the person who would be caused to sin if you did that thing, right? Like, Tori thinks it would be sin to watch this TV show together. I should be sensitive to that because even if it's not sin in actuality, if she believes it's sin and I say, no, we're doing it anyway, then I'm helping her sin against God through her conscience because she believes it's wrong, but then she's doing it anyway. And that's training someone to basically not listen to their convictions about God and caring for each other's souls that way, growing us to listen to convictions, be careful about how we represent God and how we love him is actually so much more valuable than just having a little extra freedom. Uh, the, the Bible passages you referenced in 1 Corinthians, there's another one in Romans 14. The goal is be willing to give up your rights for the sake of seeing somebody else grow in Christ and protect them from stumbling when, you know, maybe they're, it's just their understanding isn't there yet that this is okay and that this is fine, that this isn't actually sin. Or you could be wrong, right? But have humility about that and defer and make it your priority to see other people walk with Christ well. Great. We're going to move on now to the next section. Next section is the will. And in this section, we're talking about the soul's God-given capacity to desire and to do. Uh, these three Bible verses I've got here at the top uh, are just, you know, some more evidence that the spirit or the soul is involved in making choices and desiring things. I'm just going to rattle them off for you. In Exodus 35, God commands Israel to bring free will offerings for constructing the tabernacle and, quote, Everyone whose spirit moved him brought a contribution for the tabernacle. Spirit was involved in moving people to do things. In Ezra chapter 1, God stirs up the spirits of both Cyrus, king of Persia, and of the exiles of Judah. And those who had their spirits stirred up, they take action to return to Jerusalem. So God moves people in their hearts to take action, and they, therefore they take action. Soul's involved there. In Matthew chapter 26, this is the part where Jesus says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He describes the spirit or soul of a human as willing. So therefore, the human spirit has some volitional power, but might be hindered by sinful flesh, right? Corrupted and confused. 
right? And so stymied sometimes by the weakness of the flesh. What this means for us in actuality is that the will is something that the soul does, you know? It works in conjunction with the body. The body's informing the intellect and informing understanding, and the body's taking actions, right? So it's still all you, but the will is some part of, or will is some function of the soul, and this will includes both desire and action. So when we talk about will, we're not just talking about some kind of disembodied, abstract decision maker that's completely neutral in all things. We're talking about the real human experience of based on what I know about life, I really desire that thing. I desire, or I desire to stay away from that thing, or that thing makes me sad, or that thing really brings my joy. So therefore I'm going to act. All of our actions are in some way tied to understanding and then desire and then taking action. You could think of taking action as the culmination of a desire, even little ones, right? Like you wanted to come up to this class today for whatever reason, and so you took the stairs. So that was the only way to get there, right? You desired to come, even though I don't know how much you desired to be here. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> I, you know, but you came up the stairs, and so your desire culminated in showing up. And so the Bible is just frequently attributing the source of these human decisions to the heart. And the heart is like the control center of the human. Uh, it's kind of like where the center of our desire is the prompter of our actions when the Bible speaks about it. So when we speak of the will, we're, we're talking about something organic with desire and moving toward things, wanting things and doing them. And these desires are all informed by the intellect. So if I were to draw a picture, we would basically think about intellect as you understand, right? And you judge. And these things aren't really separate boxes. They're organically tied together. They're all happening in conjunction. You're understanding and perceiving the world. You're making judgments about what's good and what's desirable. And then that informs the intellect, or rather, that inform the intellect informs the will. It's forming your desires, right? What you understand about things, even if your understanding's wrong, that's informing what you want and what you're going to do. And so then inside will, inside the function of will, you are desiring, right? I'll call that a DE, and you're doing. And so your desires are culminating in actions. You'll, you see this kind of all over the place in the Bible, if you're looking for it, that Adam and Eve saw the fruit and that it was pleasing to the eye after Satan deceived them that it was good. They saw it based on the information that Eve had. She said, oh, that looks good, right? I want that, so I will take it. And so in that way, when we talk about will, we need to be careful not to think about some kind of abstract, we have will. I like make neutral decisions all the time in the abstract. Rather, I want things and I do them. That's, that's how we see it happening in the Bible. To give, to go back to the buffalo wing example, this is kind of how your intellect and will will play out in a specific scenario. Uh, so I told you before that I tasted the buffalo wings. I understood what they tasted like, the texture, what they look like. I, uh, I also understood how much they cost. It was $16. And 
Then I come over here, and now I'm judging, what do I actually think about this? Is this worth it? Is this good? What's the value of these chicken wings? Which tastes more like an $8 set of chicken wings to me, right? <laughs> and then we come over here, and now I'm deciding, like, do I want these chicken wings again? Should I come back to this restaurant? I'm figuring out what do I desire about this. And then, let's say, going out for wings again, I'm deciding I don't like those wings, so I'm now doing, I'm deciding that I'm gonna go somewhere else to get chicken wings, right? So that's essentially the idea. The will is following the judgment of the intellect. It all kind of works in a, an organic conjunction. And don't think of it too much of it as an assembly line, but do think of it as the will is not operating on its own like distinct power. It's operating on what the human understands and judges as valuable. Right. Great. Any questions about that before we move into the final section? Okay. What do you think, James? <laughs> but the question is, yeah, well, we ended up only having 10 minutes left, but here we are. Do humans have free will? Quick. <laughs> so yeah, that's the final point. Do humans have free will? Question for the class. First time, and we'll, we'll take like one answer for the sake of time. What was, when you first heard about the concept of free will, what were you told? was the initial idea, you, you impression you got of this concept? Were we told about what it is? Yeah, like, what's free will? Who defined it? You don't have to say who, but somebody defined <laughs> it for you, even if it was Morpheus in the Matrix, right? Not endorsing that movie because it's like rated R. But um, somebody helped you understand what free will is, right? You make all of your own decisions and mm -hmm. therefore are responsible. Okay, make all of your own decisions, therefore you're responsible for your own decisions. Okay, cool. Any other quick examples? Does that line up pretty much with what everybody started? The opposite of fate. Okay, opposite of fate. Can you say just a little more of that? Well, I, I would say exactly what you said, mm -hmm. and, and then just add that like, there is no, like we are not like fated to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. like, I actually made them on my own because mm -hmm. I made them, not because some other being or the universe or whatever Mm -hmm. Fated me to do so. Yeah. Okay. And so, in other words, it can't be written beforehand. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the idea? Like it couldn't be prescripted, in a sense. Okay. So that's that's kind of where we're starting at, especially in our culture. Free will is kind of the opposite of being prescripted, in a sense. Or it's making your own decisions and being responsible for them. Okay. Let's pin that to the wall and just look at what does the Bible say about free will. I'm going to go through this one kind of fast, but I left all the notes on your handout for this part. So hopefully uh, you'll be good afterward anyway. So how does the Bible speak of free will? The Bible speaks about human willing, but it rarely, if ever, talks about will as a concept. So in other words, Bible almost never says, actually, Bible never directly says humans have free will. You won't find that sentence anywhere in the Bible. But it everywhere talks about as humans desiring and acting. The biblical words that it uses, uh, the, like uses Hebrew and Greek words for choosing, words for willing or desiring, 
related verbs for desire, delight, intent, purpose. I'm getting all of this from uh, Beaky and Smalley's Systematic Theology, Volume 2, if you want to look that up later. But the Bible never makes a direct statement that humans have free will. It talks about us desiring and doing things. That's the first point. Second point clearly asserts, the Bible clearly asserts, that man can't thwart God's purposes. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's Psalm 115. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Psalm 33. The Lord turns the heart of the king whichever way God wants to. That's Proverbs 21. So we see man can never thwart the sovereign purposes of God. God, in a sense, is in control of everything. But man can never change that, right? Can't frustrate God's plans. Third point, the Bible still holds all humans accountable for their actions. Relates to what James said, that humans take actions themselves and are therefore responsible. How does that all work together with the last point? It's a mystery. But you can't avoid that the Bible says both, right? God rebukes Pharaoh immediately after hardening Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 10. It's like in the first three verses it says, God says, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then God says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, why are you so stubborn? Holds him responsible for what he's desiring and doing, even though God is sovereign over it, right? Uh, Elijah rebukes the Israelites who worshipped Baal in 1 Kings 18. Uh, the wisdom of God rebukes fools in Proverbs chapter 1. So God is clearly holding people responsible for all of their actions and decisions. Final point the Bible pinpoints the heart as the source of human decisions. It calls us to keep the heart with all vigilance in Proverbs 4. For from it flow the springs of life. In Mark chapter 7, it says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander. All of these things come from within, and they defile the person. In other words, if your heart is evil, then you will desire and do evil things. So I think a better definition of free will based on the Bible, and I took this from Beaky and Smalley as well, because I thought it was so good. Free will is the soul's capacity to choose what it judges to be good without external compulsion or internal necessity. Nobody forces it, and it's not mechanical or automatic. But it is a personal ability to will what a man perceives in his heart to be good. In other words, the will acts upon what the heart has judged to be good. If your heart judges wrong, then your, your will necessarily desires the wrong things and desire and does the wrong things, right? So in other words, all of our actions are because we actually desire them. I'm culpable, I'm accountable for what I do because I do the things I most desire to do. I have a lot of competing desires, right? A lot of competing desires. But in the end, I make the decision based on what I want to do, even when it's when I don't want to do something. Even when it's like I feel awkward or embarrassed, and so I don't do the thing I think I want to do. I don't share the gospel at work because I was embarrassed to bring up Jesus at the lunch table. But in the end, what I wanted most in that moment was to not be uncomfortable. And so I'm still accountable for it even though it kind of felt like I didn't do the thing I wanted to do, right? And even though God is sovereign over all things, he's sovereign in a way that allows for many secondary causes. 
real things still happen. We still make real decisions, even though we'll never do anything to frustrate God's plans. We still desire the thing we did. So how can we be called innocent when we did evil things because we wanted to do them, right? We're still accountable before God. So that is a basic idea of what free will is, how we should really think about it. The last thing we need to talk about is free will versus spiritual freedom. We think about free will as the ability to make decisions based upon what we want. All people have that to a degree, even people who are outside of Christ and are sinners. Before we knew Christ, we were all making decisions about what we thought was right and good, even though what we thought was right and good was different from what God actually says is good, right? And so we wanted to do the things we did, even the most sinful things. And so we're accountable for them. But biblically, spiritual freedom is the ability to do good and reject evil. If we looked at Romans 6, you'd see that God, when he saves us from our sin, sets us free from sin, and we become slaves to righteousness, right? The true freedom is found in obeying God and doing what's right, because that's where the real joy is. That's where the real fruitfulness is. That's where the, the true life is found, is in submitting to God and obeying him and following his ways. And so, though we could say everybody, even those under the bondage of sin, have a free will because they desire the, they do the things they desire, we should say, well, before we know Christ, our desires are held captive by our corrupt intellects because we judge evil things as desirable, right? We judge them as good. Even the things that look good on the outside, like when we do natural good things, even before Christ, ultimately we're doing them for either our good or for other people's good or for our profit or somebody else's profit, but not God's glory, right? And so we're still not understanding evaluating and desiring the good things of God. And so we're accountable. And the real freedom is found in when someone becomes a Christian and you're set free to actually desire the things that are good. That's real freedom. So in other words, it's helpful to make a distinction between just being able to will stuff, which is a good thing, but it's not the best thing. The best thing is you're able to will stuff, but you finally desire the things that are good and the things that are most necessary. Right. So we've just run out of time right here. I had hoped we'd be able to talk more about that. I'm just going to open it up for a quick discussion or questions, and then we'll dismiss after that. Yes, Kevin. I have two things. One here, and then the end of the spiritual freedom. I always find it interesting, fascinating, when uh, folks that claim Christ and then say they have the freedom to do something that's against scripture. I always find that just an interesting thought process on their part to use and twist the spiritual freedom that Christ does give us, but in a worldly way. So I just, I, you know, I, I just always find it interesting when I talk with other Christians that might say things like that. Um, so I appreciate you throwing that out in the, the true gospel way of what spiritual freedom is. Um, and then the, the second part is I just been reflecting this year on just how like awesome and how big God is. Mm-hmm. 
which we do often talk about, but I, I was kind of meditating on that personally, and mm -hmm. just the way that I used to understand the intellect that God did give me, and how I used to understand things and judge things and the desire, and just the connections that you made mm -hmm. from intellect to will, and then just how the Lord provided that, but now he's like sanctified that. It's like the way that we can view things now and understand things from the intellect that he initially gave us, but now we can view it through his lens. I just think that just shows how just awesome and how big and powerful that God is. Yeah. Yeah. Since we're over time, I'm going to close us with one note of application and then pray and dismiss. And if you have more questions, you want to talk more, feel free to hit me up later. We'd love to. Uh, the final piece of application is, I think, pretty straightforward. It's that if what we do and what we desire is really based upon what we understand and what we judge to be valuable, then I think a clear application is evaluate, reevaluate the measureless worth of Christ every day. Because I, I think we frequently hear the application, think about the gospel all the time, right? That, that's a pretty clear one. That comes up a lot. But we need to take that one step further and actually ask the question, based on the gospel, how valuable is Christ to me? How valuable is his humility in leaving his throne to become a man and die in my place? How wonderful is it that he actually died in my place when I was his enemy? Isn't his love magnificent? Isn't that like worth far more than any other way I could spend my time today? Isn't he so worthy? It's meditate not just on the facts of the gospel, but on the true worthiness of your God. You need to engage the judgment and not just the understanding. Once you engage that judgment, what has to follow, if you have really evaluated him as being the most valuable being and desire in the universe, what has to follow is life living in light of that, being transformed to walk with Christ and will the things that he says is good because your desire will be for him. So it needs to transform our desires. So that's, that's an application for me. It's an application for all of us. We need to engage our understanding and our judgment to reevaluate every day. How, how great is the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't he worth all of my devotion and obedience? Isn't he the most desirable thing for who he is and what he's done? It's the only way to know God. Yeah, so let's, let's close on that. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for teaching us about yourself. Lord, please apply this lesson to our hearts, what you actually mean to change us for good and not just make us smart for no reason, but make us people who desire you and obey you and walk with you for your glory. We love you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.